0: Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious
1: creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end
2: of our civilization? You
0: will pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown.
1: What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive.
3: In the last calm
1: and reflective moment before the monsters came from the deep dive
4: welcome to the podcast humanoids of the deep dive where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore today's episode we will be diving into the long-running british sci-fi series doctor who and digging specifically into a variety of the various and multifaceted monsters that inhabit its cultural landscape. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, Google, iTunes, and Podbean. Also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm a writer for Forbes, Looper, and I've written a number of pop culture philosophy chapters, edited books. Basically, if it's monsters, I've written about it, or podcasted about it, and am probably obsessed with it. I'd like to introduce today's co-hosts. Luna Wee is a horror addict with a deep appreciation for the horrific, the monstrous, and the human experience. And André Couture is a video editor, small-time reviewer, and film nut. And he's both the co-host and the editor of this fine audio establishment. Uh, Thank you both for stopping by to co-host.
3: Absolutely.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh,
4: This is actually both of your your pitch, both of you, Uh kind of. uh,
1: (laughs) I guess it was, yeah
4: yeah we're fans we're like hey can we do this show And i'm like uh i would love that and you're like we don't know who would be a good expert and i'm like fun fact i know someone who knows doctor who backwards and forwards and side to side speaking of which i'm I'm especially pleased to introduce our our guest for today's episode dr kevin decker is a professor of philosophy at eastern washington university my undergrad alma mater an author uh, of of a number of of books and things, including the book, Who is Who? The Philosophy of Doctor Who. And in addition to his uh, public higher education commitments, he co-writes and co-produces the radio comedy sketch show Men in Charge podcast with Tony Flynn. And you can find that at kpbx.org. Thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. So
2: great to be on your show, Jeff and Andre and Luna. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.
4: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, so you all uh, know at home, you know, in, in my intro, I mentioned my pop culture philosophy background. Kevin was a mentor of mine in undergrad and a professor at the philosophy program that I kind of got started writing in these first for his Terminator and philosophy work. And it just kind of ballooned from there. And we co edited Alien Philosophy together. And so he's kind of like the uh, maybe the Obi Wan to this show in a roundabout way.
2: Oh, that's the best possible compliment you could give me, (laughs) Jeff.
4: Well, I mean it though.
2: (laughs) It really is.
4: My other mentor, uh, Terry, Doctor Terry McMullen. Shout out! Uh, I also want to get on this show at some point for uh, something Star Wars related. So, but today, very special in my heart, and let's dig and do some awesome time traveling, timey wimey British madness. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so just by by very general plot summary, Doctor Who is a British sci-fi series broadcast by BBC BBC One since 1963. It follows the adventures of a human in appearance, but extraterrestrial time lord who's often referred to as the Doctor. And he travels around time and the universe in this time-traveling spaceship called the TARDIS that takes the shape of a blue British police box Typically joined by a human companion on his exploits, which are typically heroic and, you know, protect the universe and it's very fabric or the earth, etc. The Doctor has been recast on a number of occasions, but it works because one of the handy dandy features of being a Time Lord is to regenerate periodically, which leads to my theory that all the different James Bond casts are <laughs> actually James Bond's a Time Lord regenerating and it's the same unitary entity. I yeah. share this theory. He's just way less ambitious. Yeah. He's amazing. Just, he's like, like, I'm just going to be, you know, I don't need to time travel or anything. I'm just going to keep regenerating right. and stay in Britain. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's, that's right.
2: Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that uh, James Bond is an example of the trope, which I learned about from TVTropes.com called The mm-hmm. Other Darren, which of course is a, <laughs> a reference to I Dream of Jeannie. And in mm-hmm. I Dream of Jeannie, famously the main uh, character of, of Darren, uh, who's the love interest for Jeannie, um, was replaced after a couple seasons in the show with no explanation for why there's a new actor <laughs> in the world. Um And so when you have a replacement of a major character with no incontinuity explanation, apparently that's called uh, the other Darren. But <laughs> happily for Doctor Who's place on TVTropes.com, uh, the nth doctor, and nth there is what, you know, st- statisticians and philosophers use to just, you know, refer to uh, a number variable. Uh, the mm-hmm. nth doctor refers to changing out a main character with incontinuity explanation. Mm-hmm. So as Jeff just said, uh, the mechanism of regeneration uh, is the explanation for why we have 14 different actors having played the role like
4: that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because uh, I don't mind changing out the actor at all, but I prefer, as someone that cares a lot about story, that they actually take the time to engineer a character where that fits for such a long running show.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And in my opinion, um, especially the new show has been basically doing three years for any one given Doctor. And that is, mm-hmm. that, in my opinion, that's not quite enough. Uh, mm-hmm. to really set up some dramatic character development. Um, they they do their best, but I kind mm-hmm. of feel like if an actor or, or actress, since there is now a female doctor, mm-hmm. uh, was willing to stay longer, it actually might be better for story, which I'm also concerned about, Jeff.
4: Yeah, because also you have like such short 10 episode or so seasons. Right.
2: Yeah, that's, that's
4: definitely fun. a challenge. Yeah. Um, But just for listeners at home too, uh, there is... There is a uh, an absurdly large quantity of Doctor Who if you want to play catch up. Uh, <laughs> listen to this episode first, but there are 26 seasons between 1963 and 89, and those Revived in 2005 still running for a total of over 800 episodes.
1: That's right. Uh, that's right. So, the TV show too, by the way. Yeah. That's yes, that's the only show. the TV show. Uh,
2: There are also uh, original audio stories featuring Mm -hmm. actors who played the Doctor who are no longer on TV. There are, of course, comics from um, both Titan and uh, Panini Books, who does the Doctor Who monthly magazine. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there are other sources as well. I I should note, um, along with all the other uh, things that one could say about Doctor Who's longevity, it is the most documented science fiction or fantasy television program ever and um not only official uh materials that have been brought out by the bbc Mm -hmm. and other publishers right but a tremendous amount of fan not only fiction uh but also um very comprehensive uh episode guides and and, Mm -hmm. uh, interviews and things like that very very well documented
4: Oh, which, which is also kind of funny, too, because there, there's literally so much Doctor Who that there's, like, 70-odd episodes, and I just found this out today, that are missing? Kind yeah, of? That's right. mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah, that's like, right. Yeah, Like, early days of BBC, I remember uh, hearing something about, like, they just didn't care about archiving their stuff, and they yeah. just really wanted to keep empty tapes so that they could continue to tape things to broadcast because they just wanted to squeeze like rub those pennies together because who needs like... history
4: for a time traveling show
1: <laughs> that's right yeah that's exactly right.
2: And, and and you you have to think about it i mean you know my first reaction to that when i was young was how dare they you know and the ones that we get that are black and white that are missing tend to come from uh commonwealth countries former commonwealth countries like south africa or australia where mm they were distributed and lost, you know, and then somebody finds the real, but yeah, Andre, what you said was the case, but the way in which we now have recordable, streamable digital media completely changed the way people think about keeping old television Mm -hmm. Um, and that it would even be something that we would want to do for a variety of reasons.
4: Yeah, I actually worked in a place, uh, which I won't name because they were jerks, but uh, where they archived, uh, put them on blast, uh, very professional, Jeff, where they archived analog tapes and all sorts of other format stuff from long term content producers, just whoever had a contract with them and digitized and cataloged. So that's a pain, way more of a painstaking process than someone might think.
2: Um, And and I don't know if Andre, if you're familiar with this or not, but the BBC are not doing the work, but they have commissioned animators, right, to uh, use the existing soundtracks of lost black and white stories, and then they animate the action over that soundtrack. And, you know, it gives you, yeah, it's, you know, it's somewhat enjoyable, but it's the best, you know, best (laughs) thing that we've got.
1: Right, yeah.
4: Yeah. If I had to fill Stephen Moffat's shoes, which you know I'm going to put on my pretentious hat. If I had to be the showrunner mm-hmm. for the and the the brain behind Doctor Who, I would have if if the show were ever wrapping up, which at this point will probably be in 107 years, um, <laughs> then I would make the final season about like the Doctor realizing he has pivotal, important, missing history, and just redo those episodes flat out. Yeah. As like a discovery mm-hmm. thing. Just cause. Why yeah. not?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, that's a good idea.
4: I feel like it's a way that you could actually like tongue in cheek play that. And, you know, it would be like a fun thing to do, but then you'd also be like hitting for the deep seats and back.
2: Yeah, that's true. Uh, the the ending that I suggested uh, to no one, just myself for the show, was that uh, after the last story, the last adventure ends, we, we zoom back to the doctor's home planet with Gallifrey. We see a figure laying on a table uh we can't see their their head because there's some sort of helmet covering it uh and as the helmet is is brought up mm-hmm. two time lords say to this now conscious figure well i think that's enough simulation you're ready to go out into the universe doctor good <laughs> luck <laughs> right so
3: oh uh. i would throw myself through a window <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
4: You know what? I'm going to officially pronounce that as canon now.
2: <laughs> no, Luna, you don't have to do that because um, as as Jeff and I, I'm sure, have discussed when talking about Descartes and uh, uh, radical skepticism and the evil demon, if all of your experiences are equally dreamlike, then there's no real difference between that and reality. So you That's get true. a long enough run of simulated experiences
3: and that is your reality. Hey, I'll take it. Okay. Good.
2: Don't want you to throw yourself
3: out of the
4: window. You know what? Yeah. We've had no on-show while recording suicides, and I really <laughs> want to keep that running. Yeah. It's
3: I like, don't know. Like, this- I threatened to throw myself through a window at least twice a day, so you got uh-uh. one of them today. So we're, <laughs>
4: like, we're still in the safe zone. Like, we have had on this podcast every day in my office, I have, like, we've gone so many days without an accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but Kevin, you had some really, uh, fascinating comments you mentioned about the monsters of the series and um, I really want to hear your perspective.
2: So, um, first of all, I might say, thanks for mentioning my book. Uh, it is available somewhere out there by IB Taurus. A couple of the actors from the show have complained to me that it is more expensive than the other philosophy and pop culture books. And so I would better send them a free copy. Uh, but they're making more money than I am. So that's not going to happen. Uh, but also, um, David Tennant. No, no, it's from the old show. So it's less exciting, but, uh, okay. um, but also I teach, um, a philosophical voices in pop culture course once or twice every year at Eastern Washington university. And so a lot of my thinking and a lot of the research has been motivated by wanting to always um, make that class something fresh, you know, for each new group of students. So one of the things i like to say uh, to the groups about the the history of monsters in Doctor Who is, it's really surprising that there are any monsters in Doctor Who whatsoever, for a couple of different reasons. First of all, um, Doctor Who, unlike Star Trek, Star Wars, Firefly, a lot of franchises, does not have one creator, right? There is no George Lucas or Joss Whedon or J.J. Abrams of Doctor Who. There are a number of figures who brought the show to light um, in 1963 when it was first broadcast. But then what we see, especially through the classic show, is a turnover, not only of the actors that are playing the Doctor, but also, as would have been standard for American or British TV at, at the time, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, is a turnover of script editors, a turnover of producers, mm-hmm. a turnover, right, uh, a new director for each episode. Therefore, the kind of continuity that is that, that Doctor Who establishes of having certain monsters that come back again and again it, is somewhat a bit of luck, and, and it has to do with having script editors and producers who are a little bit more continuity-minded. Otherwise, it would just be new every week, and sometimes they try to do that, and it's not such a bad thing. Um, The other thing that I mentioned to students is that um, unlike in America uh, in 1963, and I'm sure you guys have plenty of anecdotes to uh, think about uh, when we're thinking about what American sci-fi was like in the late 50s and early 60s, Sci-fi was really looked down upon in Britain in 63. And um, it actually, the BBC actually had to commission a report by two people named Donald Bull and Alice Frick to go out there and find intellectual sci-fi that would not demean or sully the BBC uh, for the new time travel show uh, Mm. that they were contemplating putting on. And so one of the things that the very first uh, 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 originator of the idea of Doctor Who, Sidney Newman, who was a Canadian, said is, we won't have any bug-eyed monsters. We won't have them, <laughs> right, in this show. And that directive, by the way, lasted exactly four weeks until they introduced the Daleks. But uh, <laughs> in any case, there was this real feeling in the early years of the show that they were not gonna do space opera with a monster of the week. And therefore to introduce monsters into the show, uh, to put scares into the show, to put kids behind the couch, as they like to say, we're hiding behind the sofa from the Daleks, mom. That had to be something that they, they did not casually, right? But they had to really think about how can mm-hmm. we make these monsters pass muster for the sensors, uh, which, were, which were quite active uh, at that time. You couldn't have anything too scary but also for the production executives. So mm-hmm. really, if there are horrific elements to Doctor Who, it's, it's rather surprising uh, given, given those elements of its background. I just wanted to uh, point that out before we move forward.
4: No, I'm really glad that you did uh, because I, I think, I mean, context is, is uh, the context of a work of art is so important to this show and I find it so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And also we just did like a, a Quatermass epi- uh, episode. Oh, good. And, so, mm-hmm. and it's just funny to me because I am not at all an expert on 1950s and 60s British sci-fi. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I'm going to just BS and sell myself as one. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, of the Quatermass,
2: Quatermass was a was a big influence, especially on Doctor Who in the 70s. There were mm-hmm. also a couple of... Mini uh, miniseries uh, that Sidney Newman incidentally produced called the Pathfinder series. There's Pathfinders oh. to Mars, I think, Pathfinders to Venus. Uh, that was more uh, straight space opera, w- but without monsters. And those kind of served as the British public's, um, you know, introduction to uh, what Doctor Who uh, promised, you know, on television.
4: Yeah, I can, I can definitely see some lineage with the Quatermass episodes because... Um, I mean obviously they don't take place in space, they don't have anything to do in time, but these like varied and diversified uh extraterrestrial threats threatening the populace of Earth, and you have like an intelligent, very driven, very British protagonist right. like solving these problems in very like well-delivered science-y ways, like it's right. very wedded to that. Yeah. And I can definitely yeah. see that as a thorough, like like a thread.
2: That's right. That's right. And, and, and also in the creation of the character, the Doctor, you guys mentioned earlier that he is very heroic in solving mm-hmm. problems and, and uh, dealing with monsters. But he didn't really start off that way. And he started off as more of a what we might call a Mr. Wizard, right? Or a, mm-hmm. an old crotchety scientist who sure. is more interested, right, in the science of what's going on. And, and sometimes, in fact, in, in the 60s, uh, would endanger himself and the companions because of that eccentricity.
4: Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. It's, it's very interesting to me, too. And, and then we can uh, move to our impressions. But uh, like in it, a lot of the earlier sci-fi, there was a lot of attention paid to like, no, 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 no. People need an explanation. And that's true of American sci-fi, too, in the period. Yeah. Versus even in the reborn Doctor Who in the more modern era, there's still a good deal of that, but they're mm-hmm. also not afraid to cut like funny corners of like, like, Oh, describe something complicated. Well, it's wibbly wobbly, timely wimey. Anyway, right. moving on. And
0: I'm just like, right. okay.
4: Yeah, all yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Don't that's, bore that's the great. modern audience. I get you.
2: That's right. <laughs> now the pseudoscience that characterized the original show yeah has really kind of been dumped um and i think there's a variety of explanations for why that is Mm -hmm.
4: yeah um but i I always love to with these works uh normally we do reviews uh and everyone goes through and gives their personal review but it's a little hard with such a long running show with multiple doctors multiple showrunners multiple writers Mm -hmm. uh unless we all have sudden omnipotence that I'm not aware of. So,
1: <laughs> Sorry to disappoint And maybe
4: yeah. you all do, but I don't. So, <laughs> um, like, I just want to give impressions uh, of, of Doctor Who as a whole um, and maybe start with you as our guest, Kevin.
2: Oh, wow. Um, you know, I don't want to undermine your hosthood, uh, <laughs> Jeff, uh, but I wonder if it might be better to potentially put Andre and Luna first because I would love to listen to and maybe comment, uh, on, on their perspectives, uh, afterwards. Is that okay?
4: Hey, if that's what you want to do as our All guest, right. that's fine by me.
2: Okay. <laughs> that's okay uh, with them.
4: Well, how about, uh, Luna, would you mind starting us off?
3: I don't mind. Um, so... <laughs> I don't know that giving my impression rather than my review is any less of a task <laughs> when looking at doctor who, I guess the best way for me to answer this, uh, when I was thinking about it is like linearly. So as a kid, my impression was, what's that? Oh, like why is what is Why does this keep popping up on TV? My, my family's Caribbean. So there's a lot of British TV on our TV. Um, and it kind of disappeared, and I grew up and I went through formative years without it. Um, and then it came back, and I didn't watch it right away. And then I started watching it probably in like 2008.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: my friends were begging me to watch it. I was in college, and they were like, come on. <laughs> watch watch this thing with us and I was like I don't know y'all like I'm into Star Wars I don't know about this thing and then I sat down and my very first episode was Blink which I believe we'll be talking about later oh, and oh, yeah. I was like what is this thing and so from there I just dove in I stuck with it all the way through Capaldi on a week to week basis well after catching up um, bought like all the, like old original stuff, the audio from Lost, Like I was like totally in and it, it's a very, it was like a formative moment mm-hmm. uh, or a time in my life and going back and rewatching some episodes in preparation for this podcast. I was like, Oh, I can smell the apartment. Oh, I can, <laughs> like, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, So I don't, I, all i can say is that it's left quite the impression obviously like because i said i kind of stopped watching after capaldi it, it lost me there for a little bit and i don't know if we're going to talk about that but in general like those those middle years were amazing like the feeling of watching the 50th in the cinema and like all of those moments uh, were mm-hmm. very important to me so
2: yeah
3: yes it 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 made an impression <laughs>
2: And that that's um, I actually hear that a lot from students in the doctor who and philosophy class that when they were younger uh, in middle school or high school, they did actually see the show when it was aired or a friend got them into it. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, my uh, my goal is to is to try and put glasses on them that allow them to see it at a different level. Right. For. The deeper meaning and of course uh for what the monsters represent and why why they're scary right when we actually Mm -hmm. think about it so
3: absolutely and even going back now watching it as my current self it's like back then i watched the seasons over and over and over like i wore those things out um Mm -hmm. but going back now after a break and seeing it i'm like who does that prime minister think she is that she can talk for the whole planet? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I know exactly what
4: episode you mean. like, she's, she's like, no, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. I, I'll take leadership. I'm like, um, none of the other national leaders would recognize your authority. <laughs> One. like,
3: Right. Like, oh, you're going to make the call for all of humanity. Neat.
4: That said, yeah. the president does that in every movie and we should call that out too. That's Absolutely, true.
3: Definitely true. Also yeah. think that that's annoying.
4: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, like Independence Day through that lens is just like, oh dude, sit down. Sit down, man.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> now the, the correlate to that in the old show is in the 1970s when UNIT, the Unified uh, Intelligence Task Force, or it used to be United Nations Intelligence Task Force in the 70s, uh would always the soldiers would always be rolling their eyes at what the russians on the one hand and what the americans on the other hand were doing right and they don't you know they're they're like the comic book team alpha flight from canada right i always think about you know like the avengers going to alpha flight and saying help america's in peril and alpha flight's like we're canadian eh Uh, you know what what we're not gonna no that's not us
4: you have the Absolutely. wrong guys.
2: Exactly.
4: Uh, well, Luna, thank you so much for sharing your experience. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear them. Uh, Andre, uh, what are what are your impressions, good sir?
1: Mine aren't actually very different from Luna's because, like, I, I was introduced to Doctor Who when I was a kid, uh, not by watching it, but like when I was growing up, uh, we had some neighbors that we we had to go visit and you know dog sit for them every once in a while. And this is back when uh, videotapes were the only way to watch things. I stumbled upon like a stack of videotapes and I was like looking through them because at that point I already got bitten by the movie bug. So I was just, you know, going through their collection, just saying like, oh, what do they have here? And I saw like some very old uh, Doctor Who tapes. I-, I don't remember what episodes they were, but they were like some Colin Baker episodes. Um something about the covers just struck me as just really boring. So <laughs> I thought that it it was like something that old people were into because those was uh, the couple that lived there who needed the dog sitting. Uh, they were a very old couple. So it was like, oh, this is what people this watch. <laughs> so I'm not going to watch that. So I, I forgot about it for a while. And then uh, I became aware of it again when I was around high school age and I, I saw like snippets on like the sci-fi channel still didn't really grab me then, but then like, I really, really got into it when I was in college and I decided to start with the, uh, 2009 continuation with Russell T Davies to, as the showrunner with Christopher Eccleston playing the, the doctor, uh, Billy Piper as, uh, the companion Rose. And from there I, I was hooked. So, um, I pretty much religiously watched all of those up until pretty much the same point where Luna has dropped off, which is somewhere in the Peter Capaldi second series, and I haven't really gone back to the current run mm-hmm. since. But I have very, very often um, revisited, like the the Eccleston era, the Tennant era, and a little bit of the Matt Smith era. But that's about my scope of Doctor Who in a nutshell, Mm -hmm. pretty similar, but it it still made a very large impression on me.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually wonder how many people have dropped out of the show here in the last three or four years. And of course, uh, it it isn't hard for those of us who know anything about genre TV that, um, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about uh, the last couple of years and the the current showrunner, Chris Chibnall. Um, I know some people have directed their ire against Jodie Whittaker, the current doctor. I don't think that that's actually fair or necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's doing great job with frankly, a poorly written material. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so, um, that's unfortunate, uh, because I've found something like you were saying, Andre I really found something to really dig into with all of the doctors from the current show, even if some of them are my favorite, you know, uh, but, uh, but now, you know, uh, it's kind of like, okay, family, it's Saturday night. There's another Doctor Who on BBC America. Come on, we gotta, we gotta get this over with, you know.
4: It's like me with watching monster movies at my house. I'm just like, okay, well, I'm commandeering our television, and yeah. I'm so sorry, but also not because this is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, the, the funny thing for me is my my personal hypothesis is that like modern audiences are not as forgiving of like kind of crotchety middle-aged people especially when like a lot of people came into the rebirth episodes and i haven't seen a lot of the capaldi and i have not seen any of the whitaker not for any particular reason i'm sure she does a fantastic performance but for me it's funny because like i just feel like modern audiences got just really used to like young quirky attractive doctors yeah that are like kind of charismatic in a weird way. And that's just what modern audiences that are just coming to it thought Doctor Who was.
2: Yeah. I I, I would agree with that. And in some ways, the casting of Peter Capaldi, who when he started on the show was 55, which by the way is the same uh, age that William Hartnell, who was the first doctor back in 63 was. That's cool. Uh, William Hardnell seems a lot older and, of course, has terrible teeth in the 60s, uh, but he was a smoker and kind of lived rough. Uh, but in many ways, the casting of Peter Capaldi was, was kind of fan service to people who had enjoyed the classic show. And I know Peter Capaldi himself had been a fan, a big mm-hmm. fan, in fact, and had attended some filmings of some classic episodes in the 70s and, and things like that. So I think he put a lot of thought into the characterization and was was really influenced, especially by doctors in the 70s like John Pertwee mm-hmm. and, and Tom Baker. So I found a lot to enjoy in that because of his thoughtful characterization that attempted mm-hmm. to channel the past without, you know, being just, just mimicry, obviously. Uh, but I could see, yeah, I mean, you know, I think some people uh, might have not enjoyed that version of the character.
4: Well, yeah, and and I'm not even assuming that that's like a a legitimate way to approach the series. Mm -hmm. It's just, I kind of know how media works to some degree. And it seems like people just coming into it would have a certain set of expectations that given the wider history are not fair, perhaps. Right, but it's still the baggage they have when they approach the material.
3: That's interesting to hear. It's it's always nice to get on these and hear everyone's perspective. Like I had no problem with Peter Capaldi. I know a lot of people did, but I was like, we know what we know. What this we know the gig. He's going to die and he's going to regenerate.
0: Right,
3: you can kick and scream, but it's going to happen. And when he got there, really, his performance was probably the most enjoyable part of his seasons. He is not why I stopped watching.
1: That's cool. I concur. Yeah. Yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really great. Cause I mean, I have no bias against him. I just haven't seen those seasons, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I
2: will say too, uh, Andre, you mentioned that you stopped in his second season. Mm-hmm. That in my view is not only his best season, but it also has several really remarkable episodes. One of which called heaven sent, which is just Peter Capaldi trapped in a castle, trying to get away from something called The Veil uh, that keeps mm-hmm. killing him over and over again. It's just Peter Capaldi. There's no other speaking roles. Uh, yeah. Is is not only one of the best episodes, but as I like to tell students in the class, I say, you know, this is kind of like Alien. This is one of the <laughs> finest pieces of science fiction out there. Uh, you know, just as Alien is, I think, probably the best of the Alien films uh, as
1: well. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, uh, there, there was some really good stuff going on there in the, okay. in the
1: second season. Yeah, I'll, Actually, I'll definitely really have cool. to give that second series another shot, because yeah. I, I was just predicting the trajectory and was like, ah, I don't think I need to see how the rest of this plays out. But yeah. that's right. that's very encouraging. And that sounds like a great episode.
3: A doctor Who always has some something, some something to throw at you that you didn't necessarily think was coming. So.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So I I want to um, amend what I said earlier. I actually just, as we were talking, realized Blink was not my first episode. It was oh. one of my first episodes. But my first episode that I sat down with my friends was The Empty Child. Oh. oh. And that, again, another fantastic episode. And I was like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I know you've been telling me to watch this forever. I'm in. Let's start from the beginning. And then I was like, Melty trash Cans what did you get me into? (laughs) (laughs) And then eventually I was like, oh, right, right, right. No, I'm in.
2: Right. So you don't have to get very far into learning the names and the authorship in the new show before you find out that Stephen Moffat, who was the second showrunner, took over in 2010. Uh, after Russell T Davies has written, regardless of the period of the show, some of the best and, and often, like Empty Child and Blink, some of the scariest mm-hmm. episodes. And they really hold up, too. Uh, I can, I can, I mean, I rewatch Blink with my class every year. It's the one episode that we absolutely must do every year. And mm-hmm. uh, I continue to enjoy it.
4: Yeah, I literally just watched it. Uh, it definitely does hold up. Yeah, it's funny for me because I never really, I didn't grow up being like a big Doctor Who fan and not for any particular reason. Like my experience of Doctor Who was I just didn't find much of it where I was. And then when I would visit my family for holidays and stuff, you know, their holiday episodes are very prominent. And so I'd often watch those I enjoyed it. And then I kind of got into Torchwood Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and watched all of that. Yeah, and it was quite good. Yeah. And it kind of led me to reapproach Doctor Who, but then once I sort of embraced my like lifelong horror sensibilities I like all of this stuff and that's just who I am and I should just commit hardcore to being the person that I am Hell yeah! it led me to kind of appreciate especially in the the modern runs uh, there's a lot more like horror sensibility there's a lot more drawing out of some of the more frightening implications of some of these species yeah. that for me the world building behind that was very interesting I mean part of the reason why I I uh, loved writing chapters in all those pop culture philosophy books or, or did the show was because a lot of these monsters, creatures, species that are a part of our cultural heritage have so many implications and so much depth if we really think through it and that's very true of a lot of the creations for Doctor Who so once I kind of committed myself to like I really like this thing and have a bit of a knack for it and it makes me very happy I mm-hmm. should just embrace it yeah then I started getting into it more after realizing through Torchwood that I'm like shit I really like this, this weird yeah. weird stuff
2: yeah the difficulty of course is to, is to study it or talk about it in a way that you deepen your appreciation for it rather than spoiling it right because like yeah there's a reason why there's no philosophy of humor right because when you explain the joke <laughs> it's not funny anymore
4: oh I, oh i get that yeah that yeah. that's part of the reason why like we do like brief reviews but this is not a review show Uh huh. Right. Like, right. it's like no 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 we're digging into the ideas and the context and the design and the right. person behind the mask and not like oh let's just talk to death the ending of the show and spoil it for you like right. Totally agree. That's lovely hearing everyone's perspective.
1: And just as, as you were saying, Jeff, that uh, like after watching Torchwood and realizing that you could get, you could sort of own your um your nerd fandom into Mm -hmm. something that's like labeled sci-fi or horror or or whatever it is like genre adjacent that's kind of what happened to me too like when i started Mm -hmm. getting into doctor who in college
4: yeah
1: i mean you're gonna hear this from everyone who who went to college but really it really opened up my worldview uh (laughs) so like i i just realized that like no one cares like if you just go ahead and, and just be unabashedly yourself about the things you like the things you like to do from there. I just dived into like all of that stuff and, um, Doctor Who mm-hmm. got me into uh, like Star Trek, and it's gonna come up in this episode and in future episodes. I'm gonna make some Star Trek comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> this everything that I am now, I, I kind of owe to just how Doctor Who just opened me up to the world around me of pop culture, subculture, and just everything yeah. film, TV, books, comics, you name it.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's actually such a powerful statement and it's totally true for me too and i just didn't think about it like that like i was in college and i got it i was with this friend group and as you do in college you hop friend groups and Mm -hmm. things change and so i was with this friend group got into it took it to the next phase of friend groups and they were like uh wait you don't go to dragon con every year you're going (laughs) and that like you know i'm going to college in florida as a black goth nerd and they were Mm -hmm. like let's go to a let's go to dragon con my whole world exploded when i stepped into you know the marriott and then i got back and i like yeah it's it really did open up so much for me just like Hounding my friends about Doctor Who <laughs> until they were yeah. like, "We're going yeah. to a convention."
4: Oh yeah, like yeah. like my um my convention story because I haven't gone to to that many cons and I kind of regret it. But something that was really informative to me, like in 2015, visiting back home, right around the time that they had the 73rd World Sci-Fi Convention in Spokane, mm-hmm. in my hometown. Yeah. so i did that yeah. and it was the wow. just like, i'm like oh my god there's so many freaking people like me yes. yeah, it's yeah it's
2: lovely. Really cool. that yeah. was the convention where i happen to be sitting for completely different reasons uh having nothing to do with WorldCon, in another hotel in downtown spokane and uh a guy walks by and i did a double take and i'm like oh that's george r, r. martin <laughs> oh man <laughs> no big I, deal. I just walked by and, at that point in time, I wasn't angry at him for not having finished the series. But.
4: <laughs> it's so funny you mention that because at Sasquan, is what it was uh, referred to as, I saw his panel where he read part of the fifth novel that, fun fact, folks at home, he still has <laughs> yeah. not
1: finished. But you, you never know. It might be released by the time this gets released. Oh, I will finish so, it. Fingers crossed. <laughs>
4: maybe, maybe. Fingers crossed but uh, Kevin I don't want to leave you out are, are there any impressions that you would like to add
2: well um, I, I would say I just want to kind of underscore what, what Andre and Luna said by pointing to Craig Ferguson who of course used to have a lovely uh, late night show. Uh, talk show the Scotsman mm-hmm. Craig Ferguson he was actually in a punk mm-hmm. band with Peter Capaldi that's
0: right
2: when they were, uh, when they were in their late teens and uh, that of course is where Peter Capaldi learned to play the guitar that he does it started in season two, uh, his second season, I should say. Uh, but uh, when, you know, uh, Ferguson uh, never had Capaldi on, but he did have Matt Smith, uh, the 11th Doctor, on a couple times. And they actually did a uh, song and dance routine with pantomime horses and uh, what appeared to be a, a gay man in silver spandex with a Tom Baker scarf on Um, And the point of all this was that Craig Ferguson wanted to let people know that Doctor Who was unique because the Doctor solves, mostly solves problems without violence, right? But rather with intelligence Mm -hmm. and with kind of a romantic sense of putting the universe right or helping the underdog or that sort of thing. Hmm. And that I got that sense from it very early on, which for me was 1981 and I was watching it when I first entered into high school on PBS. Uh, The classic show was shown in St. Louis where I grew up at 10.30 at night on Sunday nights. So I would watch with my father and he would inevitably go to sleep (laughs) on the couch within the first 10 minutes Um, and I would watch the rest and I think, I think I can actually illuminate the very moment at which I was hooked, which was this. I liked the show. Uh, it was fun. It was goofy. It was obviously cult. Uh, it had some you know resonances with like Monty Python and other things that I liked. But then I fell asleep on an episode I never should have fallen asleep on, uh, which was called Legopolis. And Legopolis happened to have been I think the most popular doctor from the classic show, Tom Baker was his last episode and therefore a regeneration episode. And I didn't know any of that about the show. So I ended up going to high school the next day and asking my friend, Alan, who also watched the show, what happened at the end of Legopolis? Did the master win? What, you know, what happened? And he said, Oh my God. He said, The doctor fell off of a radio telescope, he broke every bone in his body, and then he turned into this blonde guy. I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And so from that point in time, I think that my shock over over that way of of propelling the narrative forward, which, of course, they had done in the show many times uh, before then, and the British viewers would have been very familiar with it. I I think that was the point at which it dug its claws into me and I I was not able to get them out again.
4: I'm so glad to know that.
2: Um. (laughs) That just didn't happen, right? That just didn't happen in movies and TV shows that I was... No,
4: That's one of the things that I love about genre so much because it's like trying to describe it to that friend that's like, wait, what did I miss? Or like, wait, why, why should I watch? It's like, okay, so... Uh, this person is secretly that person, and then right. this monster comes in and eats his family, and then he forges a battle axe and goes to town. Like it's like describing Mandy to people. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Like I'm like okay.
1: I just um, say you have to be there. You just said it pretty well, Jeff.
4: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just love like like it's, it's it's describing Doctor Who episodes is exactly to me like describing the movie Mandy. Which is like, okay, yeah. so um, the Terminator forges a battle axe, drops all the acid, and assassinates a bunch of Hellraiser demons because they killed his wife. <laughs>
3: like, it's like, right.
4: You're going to need to explain all of those linkages.
3: Oh, that movie makes so much more sense now. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I missed that subtext. <laughs> right. um,
4: and, 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 any doctor who episode for an outsider you definitely get that same feeling where it's like i really need this context now yeah it's wonderful
2: yeah i think that's right they're hard to explain (laughs)
4: they are um but it's worth it at that this is a monster show there's so many awesome monsters to dig into so i'm gonna pivot i think how about we all do like a round of one monster and then see where that leaves us. I think that's great. That's good. Kevin, as our guest, would you like to start?
2: Uh, I would. And and what I think I would like to do is I'd like to use less time than, than hopefully everybody else feels comfortable doing. To contrast one of the best monsters in Doctor Who, I think, with with some of the worst. Mm. Perfect. So I think it would be hard for people to say, I like Doctor Who, but I just... I hate the Daleks, right? The Daleks <laughs> don't make any sense to me. Now, it is possible to hate their screechy exterminate voices or whatever. But um, <laughs> once you find out not only how long the Dalek history, starting in 1964, is, but also that the Daleks are not only connected to the British fear of Nazis um, mm. and the rejection of racial purity codes and a martial culture and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But also when you find out that they're really steeped in that late 50s, early 60s Western fear in the Cold War, right, of nuclear holocaust. And the Daleks themselves are mutants, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're mutated humanoids who are inside these shells that allow them to survive and, and eventually become, become warlike. So, uh, from the very start, right, uh, I I think I have to acknowledge the greatness of the Daleks for for a few different reasons, including the fact that Doctor Who probably would not have survived past one year on screen in the 60s had the Daleks not come along and captured the imaginations of the little kids who were watching Mm -hmm. it as a children's show originally. And of course, they love to uh, run around on the schoolyard with their hands pointed out, you know, going <laughs> exterminate, exterminate. And I, I can imagine one of them saying, but, but somebody has to be Doctor Who. And the, and the kids are all like, no, who cares? We'll just all be dollars, right? <laughs> they're, they're the kind of monster that uh, not only sent a lot of young British children in the 60s behind the sofa, uh, but, but also um, the kids enjoyed being them, right? They were mean mm-hmm. and nasty and in some really good Dalek episodes. And for those of you, Andre, Luna, uh, Jeff, who are familiar with Chris Eccleston's time as the ninth doctor, mm-hmm. there's one story called, just called Dalek. Yes. <laughs> Every so often I, we get an episode where there's one Dalek who is super smart. And oftentimes that Dalek is able to really push the levers of the doctor's Psychology, right, and manipulate them and get them angry and that sort of
0: thing. And mm-hmm. uh,
2: that had happened in the classic show a few times, but really they've done a great job of it in the new show. So mm-hmm. the Daleks are great and uh, have a lot have a great future ahead of them. The the rubbish monster I'd like to briefly mention <laughs> <laughs> is from the 1965 story, The Ark, which is an interesting story because. It's a four-episode black-and-white William Hartnell story. The first two episodes take place on one of the ships that's fleeing the explosion of the sun and the consuming of the Earth. And uh, we actually see that happen, of course, in the new show in an episode called The End of the World. Uh, But the ships are fleeing, these arcs are fleeing, and they're full of humans, and they're full of uh, future humans, of course, and flora and fauna from the Earth, etc., but they also have this alien race called the Monoids. Now, like in Pokemon, I always find it strange that there are creatures whose actual name has something to do with their physical appearance, or even worse, like in Pokemon, they say their name, which (laughs) has never made sense to me. But the Monoids, as you can probably guess, are these green rubbery uh, aliens about human size who have like a beetle's haircut, <laughs> floppy black haircut, right? And then um, the haircut, practically speaking, uh, does not allow the, uh, the, the viewers, right, to see the eye holes for the actor in the costume, mm-hmm. but the actor's mouth moves one eye, a cyclops-like situation, right? So down at mouth level, there is an eye that moves back and forth and up and down. And you can imagine the actor in there with the stick, you know, (laughs) attached to the eye, you know, flailing his tongue or back and forward, up and down, you know, to make it look like, because they have no mouths. So that's the only way that they can express anything. And the monoids are so rubbish, not just because of how they look, they could have maybe pulled this off, but the monoids have really strange ideas uh, about being sinister and evil. They put the doctor and his companions in a security kitchen. So one of my favorite lines from the show is, put them in the security kitchen. <laughs> I kid you not. I I still don't understand it. I still don't understand it. And then there's a great... On a very special episode
4: a... of Gordon Ramsey's MasterChef.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And here we have G. Monoid, who is going to make... Be... At the, at the end of the story, the doctor's companion catches one of the monoids communicating, uh, you know, with some futuristic device. And she says, hey, what are you doing over there? Were you talking to your people? And the monoid is like, uh, 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 no, no, I wasn't. I mean, the overactive <laughs> is, just, is just terrible. Right? <laughs> so there's really little to recommend the monoids. Uh, maybe they'll reinvent them for the new show and make them, you know, slavering. Horrible creatures that would be fun, but I'll mention the Daleks and the monoids. (laughs) Uh, I'm so glad you did. Um, (laughs) uh, first of all, the monoids.
4: Uh, I'm okay, so I'm a big fan of they won't always get on the show because I only do stuff that also has kind of some depth we can dig into, you know? Yeah, um, but I still love the cheesy monsters and the the dorky designs and i love like the uh i mean i grew up like a lifelong fan of the x-files and so there's some absolute bangers of their monster of the week episodes and there's some where i'm just like oh i don't you're doing santa ghosts <laughs> <laughs> that was your that was your plan <laughs> like okay um Still love to cover them. Right. I st- still have a place in my heart. Uh, the Daleks are interesting too because they're like tiny little hate tanks. Yeah, you know, like, and that's literally kind of all they are. Like, they literally have every emotion outside of hate.
2: Right, right,
4: ripped from their being, and
2: yeah, I will say that the Daleks, less so than other monsters from both the classic and the new show, they don't participate in the kind of visceral horror um that for example you get when you have an episode that shows you how cybermen Mm -hmm. are made right
4: right thinking
2: of the david Tennant two-parter where uh, right they're playing uh in the jungle uh, the lion sleeps tonight and people are screaming and we know that their brains are being taken out right and that sort of thing but there was one particularly uh uh visceral Matt Smith episode called Asylum of the Daleks mm-hmm. where he's communicating uh, indirectly with a character played by Jenna Coleman not Clara but a character called Oswin Oswald mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and right at the end of the story when the doctor finally finds her in this Dalek asylum it turns out that we've been seeing on the screen her, her uh, view of what she thinks she looks like but she's actually been turned into a Dalek, right? She's inside the yeah. Dalek casing. Um, and, you know, that's, mm. that's pretty horrifying, um, particularly because I'm a yeah. fan of Jenna
4: Coleman. So. I always think it's interesting too, the difference between like the, the Daleks and the Cybermen as like classic antagonists for the doctor. Whereas like one obsessively eliminates anything that's not them. Yeah. And mm. one absorbs anything that's not them and makes them the same. Right. That's right. And, and I, I think that's, uh, it's kind of strangely two sides of the same coin almost.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And it, and it contrasts right. Starkly with the doctor's individualism, right. Which is Mm -hmm. exemplified in his slash her, uh, desire to leave their home where, you know, the, the culture is stagnant and, um, and unchanging, And to go out into the universe and to show that to the companions.
4: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Lovely choices. Um, How about uh, Andre? What what would your choice be?
1: Um, So I think it would probably have to go um, with the Sycorax. Mm. I know that they made an appearance or they were mentioned in some a couple of different audio drama episodes, yeah. the names of which are escaping me, but the, the main uh, thing that they popped up in was um, David Tennant's first appearance as the 10th Doctor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the uh, Christmas special. I think it was... 2007 uh, the christmas invasion Mm -hmm. because it's like just right after the regeneration to continue the spirit of your childhood friend kevin i'm gonna (laughs) go back and just like say what happened to make him regenerate yeah so there was this whole arc in the christopher eccleston series where this entity is following him indirectly at first but then like very pointedly and it's been called uh, the bad wolf entity. And by the time it hits the like series finale, the bad wolf entity is basically it's an energy resides within the TARDIS somewhere. And it needs like a human or humanoid bipedal vehicle to, in order to do things. So when the doctor and Rose are in the TARDIS, it breaks out and inhabits Rose's body. And then from there, the bad wolf entity is basically uh, attacking the doctor and, um, surges like his body with energy and then he ends up like expiring that form for lack yeah. of a better term
2: it says something like nobody nobody is supposed to be able to take that sort of energy that amount of energy hit their body and survive so he doesn't
1: yeah and of course he doesn't but like luckily he can regenerate because it was the first series that came back after the long hiatus so they just made a huge thing of it where like energies is like shooting from every extremity of his body. And then all of a sudden he's David Tennant. <laughs> yeah. And then um it just kind of like ends.
4: It happens. I was David Tennant for like a solid week because it was just like, you know, you had a hard <laughs> week. You, have, you know, you Does take the melatonin, you sleep real hard. I woke up David Tennant. <laughs> David Tennant. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> They don't advertise that, but it happens.
1: I mean, like, I, I, I got that side effect after my first vaccine shot. But then after the second yeah. one, I reverted back to Andre.
4: Moderna makes you Matt Smith. Yeah, uh,
1: no. It's, it's not so much the 5G, but it's the David Tennant that gets you. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, the Christmas special opens pretty much right after that, like, in terms of time, uh, where the doctor is, like, he's alone in the TARDIS, and he's just, like, basically he's just got like an energy hangover and he's just like trying to figure out where, where Rose is where Mickey is uh, the companion and her boyfriend. He, he lands back in Wales. I'm sorry, not Wales, (laughs) Cardiff where uh, Rose is and her mom is and Mickey's off doing his own thing. And so he, he runs back into them and his, his energy is still like surging every once in a while. So he's just getting like really fatigued and, um, Meanwhile, like at some point, uh, there's been a new prime minister elected as a result of like previous arcs of a World War Three scare. That that whole thing. Um, Harriet Jones is the new prime minister, and she's overseeing this joint operation with UNIT, and they've been receiving like these really strange transmissions from space, and they don't know what it is. It seems to be like an an alien language, and then at some point they somehow find out that they can translate the the language and they decipher that they're making threats against earth and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They attempt to reach out to the doctor, but at this point he's met up with Rose and they're letting him basically just sleep in their apartment. And he's just like in a very deep sleep. And then these uh, Santa looking robots just appear in like a, a square and they're just, they're all playing trombones, trumpets, or whatever. <laughs> and it just, it seems really creepy at first, but Rose is sort of like not really worried about it, but then they keep following them and then they attack them with uh, flames just coming out of the, uh, the instrument themselves. And right. they run and hide and go back home. They try to get the doctor to save them, but he's like, he's out. So they're kind of on their own, uh, but they still have to carry the doctor around. What they end up doing is bring him in the TARDIS, let him rest, and try to figure out what to do. So they decide to go for a picnic. All while this is happening, this ship, which just basically looks like a meteor, a meteorite, is approaching Earth. Mm -hmm. And it just hovers over the UK because that's where you want to be. And (laughs) it ends up transporting slash teleporting uh the tardis <laughs> with rose and the doctor inside it and so they get beamed onto the ship and rose comes out and then she's like what is this there's a bunch of aliens with like bone helmets just in a semicircle awaiting something to happen and um they are like threatening world domination the message that they send to the prime minister, or I guess Earth in general, is: uh, we own you. We now possess your land, your minerals, your precious stones. You will surrender, or they will die. Sikkarex strong. So they're
4: space Americans. Yeah, <laughs> they're. Sp- <laughs> oh, I can God. say it, it's my show. <laughs>
1: Sycorax mighty, Sycorax rock. Funnily enough, the the guy translating it immediately assumes that they mean that they rock in the modern sense. He's like, they're
4: just hip with the the lingo. We're
1: here. We're going to take your ship. And we're awesome.
4: (laughs) They made like the the metal devil horns hand
1: signal. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely hear us doing this. But then from there... uh, Rose is just trying to placate these aliens that she does she knows nothing about at all. Uh while the doctor is just like waking up or trying to wake up and funnily enough, like a spilled canister of tea that like wakes him up from like the smoke that it creates with the electrical wires or something. <laughs>
3: could not get more British.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah, because he's like, you know, he's like not even human, but he's space British. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like
1: the whole episode, he's in pajamas and like a uh, one of those robes, which he does remark on later as like being very Arthur Dent. So uh, I thought that was a neat little um, (laughs) Easter egg there, too. They explain to the doctor once he comes out that they're going to take over the planet and they're like taking over all of these people. And they're sort of controlling about a third of the world's population to go up to the top of buildings and then walk to the very edge and stop. And then they're saying surrender or all of these people will jump.
3: <gasps> Maybe I'm sick That's why I want to throw myself through wind. <laughs> <laughs> it's just
1: they're
4: controlling you with blood magic, is all. Oh, like, yeah. okay. <laughs> you got blood magic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so then uh in this really wonderful scene, um the doctor just sort of like walks around the whole thing, just taking inventory of like who these guys are, what they're doing, and then the fact that they're using what is called blood control to take over uh the, the consciousness of everyone on that planet that has this type of blood.
4: Yes, it's like some two billion people or so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Just a third of the world's population. No
4: big deal. Yeah,
1: (laughs) it it sort of just goes from there of like a a battle to save a third of the world, technically. But the the Sycorax have like a much more interesting makeup than what they actually show and explain in the actual episode. At first, they come across as very like Klingon-like in design and attitude. They're like humanoid bipedals, but they both have like endo and Mm. exoskeleton Mm. for protection. And their internal bone structure, I assume, is... Uh, similar to that of humans and some of them wear helmets that I'm going out on a, on a limb and guessing that they resemble like the skulls of their people or ancestors although they could be mm-hmm. the skulls of the ones that they've killed which would be very on brand
3: ornamental hats
1: yeah um, but mostly just to like instill mm-hmm. fear in their enemies and their like immediate subordinates
3: mm-hmm. Kevin mentioned earlier Pokemon, and (laughs) when I think of the Sycorax, I think I get strong Cubone vibes. Oh, yeah. And the reason I do is because, well, I mean, obviously, if you know who Cubone is and what what he looks like, he wears, but he wears the skull of his dead mother. (laughs) And so I just kind of feel like maybe the Sycorax got something to talk about, you know, maybe they need a little therapy to talk (laughs) through wearing the skull of their guardians or something. Sycorax
1: not that strong. Sycorax could be mighty. Sycorax don't oh, rock. Oh, oh,
3: oh, oh. Sycorax <laughs> don't rock at all. <laughs> oh, poor
2: Sycorax. <laughs> so I, I wanted to mention, Andre, that with the revealing of the Sycorax look, uh, you know, this is an example, I think, of Doctor Who's uh, self reflexivity, right? It, po- it pokes fun at itself and other genre elements. And so we're all wanting to know after seeing, you know, just Sycorax faces or uh, helmets, right, for for half an hour. What do they look like underneath? Well, they actually don't look that different underneath, right? They're just bone ugly underneath as well. <laughs> well, it's kind
4: of like what yeah. people expected an uh, alien out of, um, you know, the corpse they find on the the derelict starship, right? Yeah. Where mm-hmm. people thought, like, oh, is because it kind of looks like a a, a desiccated like skeleton. Mm-hmm that's been there for who knows how long and then you have prometheus is like no 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 no. they just had like suits that look like a desiccated skeleton yeah and they were like fleshy peoples like yeah. they were like stark white fleshy peoples inside and right. but like the doctor who episode like like no, no no the the sycorax totally it's kind of fleshy people with a skeletal inside and outside and like, right. they committed to that skeletal look, which is kind of cool.
1: Yeah.
3: They are a skeleton sandwich.
1: <laughs> they, they are. They kind of look like Zordon from uh, the Power Rangers.
3: Oh,
0: yeah.
1: A little bit. Like, that combination of like yeah. just, like, yeah. sinewy muscle, bone, mm-hmm. and, like, minus the metal exoskeleton. This wasn't in the episode at all, but uh, apparently, the. The Sycorax are, like, a really superstitious race. They they believe in magic and witchcraft. They worship this god called Astrophia. And on every one of their ships and vessels, they have a dedicated room for, like, a cathedral as a group worship chamber regulated by a Sycorax cool. priest. And this is, this is where, like, I really wanted to see this in an episode, and they still could. Uh, within the chamber, they have, like, a giant statue somewhere of a Sycorax form called a Wish of Bones. And... On the Wish of Bones, they fashion that out of the skulls of the species that they have murdered and conquered. So it's next-level sculpting.
3: Yeah. That's cool, though. I
1: really want to see that, like, that. That would be
3: rad. What if it was like a race of mice? Like, how many, how many skulls? Would it be tiny? That would
1: be this. Yeah. <laughs> I just use that for, like, the, the decoration or the embellishments.
3: I
4: like that it's like, like a like a species wide level like predator thing mm-hmm. you know where like the yauta the, the predator species like they they take trophies right. of their conquests individually mm-hmm. um but it's like, like no, no no we this this is not a thing anymore and then they kind of filter it through like a george r, r. martin lens because that's very much like a song of ice and fire title right. <laughs> like 100 like percent no, I love that. Um what it so why did you uh wh- why was this your your first pick?
1: I think this was my first Christmas special and like the, the Sycorax nice. really stuck with me and at that time I was also watching Star Trek. Like a lot of the monsters and different like antagonist alien races I could immediately draw similarities to. And I was just really drawn to the design and just <laughs> the rude attitude that the Sycorax brought It was one of the first ones of the new doctor at the time that felt like really uh sinister and like murderous mm-hmm. rather than just like because you know like with daleks and everything yeah they say exterminate but they hesitate for such a long time before they fire their lasers like they always give the doctor like so much room yeah
4: they the, like dialogue with the doctor
1: yeah they, they always draw everything out it's like very comic booky i'm gonna explain my great yeah. plan before uh you have like mm-hmm. way too much time to escape but they they really Press the Doctor into uh, like having to uh, literally fight for the survival of the mm-hmm. rest of the human race because uh, mm-hmm. the Doctor himself uh, he proposes a trial by combat which they have very strict rules about so if they do that they have to honor it and then they have to play out the fight
3: very Klingon yeah
1: yes yeah very Klingon in this fight the Sycorax that fights the Doctor ends up cutting his hand off which I don't think I've seen mm-hmm. since no. really it was. Just lucky enough for the doctor that he was, was having these energy surges that he could just grow one back in like the matter of seconds
3: the ultimate fuck
1: yeah exactly
3: (laughs) no i i I dig it
4: yeah i i think it's it's a a great species uh they have the same attitude that the humans had for avatar it's like oh hey we we own this because we want to and and their their like species-wide commitment to that is is definitely frightening in an existential way
2: yeah now here is the part of the program where i live up to jeff's noting that um i know way too much about doctor who so (laughs) The name Sycorax comes from Shakespeare. It's from The Tempest. Uh, Sycorax is the name of the witch who uh, gives birth to Caliban, who's one of the important characters in The Tempest. So in the David Tennant episode from the next season, The Shakespeare Code, David Tennant's doctor sees a skull that he says boy, that really reminds me of the Sycorax. And Shakespeare, who's <laughs> liberally borrowing from him the whole episode, says, ooh, good name. I think I'll take that. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs>
4: That's exactly the type of deep knowledge that I was really hoping. <laughs> like, I knew you had it, and I was just hoping it would spontaneously come out, and I, I love it. Thank you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Love it, Andre. Great choice. Uh, Luna, what's What's your choice for this episode, your central one?
3: Before I, I dive in, I do have to say that that, ep- that Christmas Invasion was a fantastic episode. Um, mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. But I feel like we got the monster wrong. I feel like Rose is a bigger monster in the Doctor Who universe than the Sycorax. <laughs> I know I get flack for saying it every time, but I'm going to put it out there. Not on this show,
4: you
1: don't. And not for me.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like. Rewatching that episode i was like
1: you oh. make some poor choices in that episode
3: like why are you gonna be mad at a dude for dying oh how dare you do this to me it's, it's death it, it's not to you it's-, <laughs> it's not about you
2: rose i mean if you really want to feel bad rose have the doctor die on you when you're on another planet in the 30th century okay (laughs) this happened at home
3: oh my gosh anyway okay i i will let it go but i had to say something that's fair okay so the monster i'm going to choose um is called well it doesn't actually have a name uh and it is very on brand for me to just make things more complicated than it has to be so that's the show (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank goodness I chose The Creature on Midnight or The Midnight Entity Mm -hmm. from the episode called Midnight, Series 4, Episode 10. It's a tenant episode. This is an episode written by Russell T. Davies. Um, And the companion at the time is Donna. And just to kind of go down like a quick synopsis of the episode um, before I get to the creature itself. So basically the doctor and Donna are visiting Midnight this diamond planet as a vacation and the doctor decides to go sightseeing because this planet is unique in that it has no air and it is literally toxic to look out or be out in. You apparently are going to die immediately. They say it has extonic sunlight. I looked it up. I'm not a person that knows stuff about, what are they called? Physicists? <laughs> See? I don't even know what they're called. Physic humans? <laughs> I'm not one of those smart people. Um, so I don't know if it's a real thing or even a theory, but it when I looked it up, google was just like you do you mean exotic light and i was like no (laughs) so i don't know if ectonic light is real um but apparently it's real real bad and uh so the doctor wants to go see a sapphire waterfall and basically think of it as like if you haven't seen the episode think of it as like a shuttle like a bus shuttle you're gonna take it for four hours to go see this sightseeing thing on this little planet expedition situation but It's toxic outside, and you can't look, so they have to shield everything down. And so you're in this, like, what I call airplanes, which is a tube. You're in a tube going to a place, but you can't look outside, and you're stuck there with the people. And essentially, on this uh, ship, of course, the doctor's interested in everyone else, so he's going around, talking to everybody, introducing himself, learning more about them. And at one point, the vehicle stops, uh, seemingly without explanation. The captain and the mechanic say take the opportunity to look out at the planet at the urging from the doctor um, saying, well, why don't you look out there? Because he really is uh, sometimes the little devil on your shoulder. So they look outside and it's like extremely bright. No one's ever looked at this area of the planet before. They're on a new route and they're running out of time to look. They have to put the shields down, but the mechanic sees a shadow running towards them. Um, Everyone else is looking for it, but no one else sees it. So that's kind of that. Even though there's not supposed to be anything alive on this planet, there's there's never been any history mm-hmm. on this planet, et cetera. Uh, so after a bit of panic, the passengers, you know, freak out about breathing and stuff. Doctors like, no, 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 calm down, it's fine. And then the banging starts, and this is where it kind of feels a little bit more like a horror movie, which of course mm-hmm. got my attention, curled up mm-hmm. in my bed watching this episode. And so there's banging all around this vehicle tube situation and of course the scientist that's not the doctor on the flight whatever expedition is insisting well it's impossible there's no way something is out there because it's it's toxic and blah 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 but the banging continues and then happens on the main door one of the passengers knocks three times and the creature answers with three knocks mm-hmm. then the doctor uh tries four knocks it replies with four knocks one passenger is panicking uncontrollably her name is Sky, and basically the knocking kind of travels across the vehicle to where she is. And then there's this big explosion, the cockpit's gone, and this passenger that was panicking is now frozen and, and not responsive anymore which again very horror movie esque. Mm -hmm. everybody else is on one side of the vehicle and she is over on the other side all the seats are ripped up and she's just like shaking
2: Luna I I didn't want to interrupt you per se but uh, they're channeling a little Blair Witch Project in her right yes turned away from Mm -hmm. the rest of the people in the tube and she just will not respond to them it's very very chilling
3: absolutely yeah no thank Mm -hmm. you very much interrupt all you want um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that that's absolutely true. And it it's just a, an incredibly eerie feeling. And it feels claustrophobic for all the ways that it's being filmed. And so the passenger remains not responding. And of course, the doctor is going to get really close to her and start trying to figure out if she's okay. And this is where the repeating starts. So now everything that anyone says on the vehicle, she says. She says it in her own voice. It's she's not mocking anybody's voice, it's just her own voice. She's repeating exactly what they say, um, and everyone starts freaking out, of course. And then eventually, the repeating stops. And when it starts, the repeating yes, stops, the repeating stops. The repeating and stops. Then, oh, Jeff, oh, I got you. <laughs> oh, you got me. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to get you back. You've opened <laughs> the floodgates, sir. It is on, it is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tipping,
4: my, I'm tipping my hat to you.
3: Oh my gosh. Oh, oh. And I'm like, as I'm saying all of this, I'm like getting excited about it. And then you do that and I'm like... Ah. No, continue. I love it. So at, when she starts speaking again, she's in sync with everyone, which of course is extremely uncomfortable for everyone. They're like, what? how is she doing this? Is she predicting what I'm saying? And the whole time she's saying what they're saying in sync with them. And then the next turn it feels like in in the episode is when one person who is the flight attendant says the words we should throw her out and suddenly rather than panic about what she is and what how is she doing it it turns into panic about how do we how do we kill her how do we get how do we get rid of her the doctor of course resists this movement among the passengers um and he d- does, in their defense, get a little cocky, where he's like, "Well, I'm special," and it's—I mean, he is, but you know, <laughs> sit down. And uh, so, um, so you know, he's like, "I'm smarter," the, the, you know, don't kill her. And then they're like, "Well, bitch, I'll throw you out." So they start thinking, you know, going down that road. And then the repeating passenger sky stops syncing with everyone except for the doctor. So then they're just like, "Oh yeah, I'll definitely throw him out." Uh, of course, there's always one person on on board that's like no this isn't him it's her it's something else whatever but of course they're all riled up ready mm-hmm. to do whatever they need to do is it her is it him is it hers at him and then the repeating passenger starts saying what the doctor says but before he says it yeah. and that was one of the like eeriest feelings i've felt watching a doctor mm-hmm. who episode of just like watching the doctor shaking and almost crying yeah. As mm-hmm. this monster has essentially raped his voice, he's 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 stolen of choice. He's he can't move, and I mean he's powerless. He's absolutely powerless, but he's still alive and there. Um, it's it's such an incredible scene yeah. and so well acted, so well directed. Mm-hmm. Great right act, yeah. Yeah.
1: And you can see him like really just like trying to fight it, yeah. but like he mm-hmm. just can't, he can't break it. It's
3: kind of ironic
4: too, because like uh, that's, that's tenant, right? Yes. Because he later mm-hmm. plays the purple man and Jessica Jones, right? Um, whose voice <laughs> yes, right. can control manipula- <laughs> manipulate her action. So mm-hmm. later yeah. he kind of does the same thi- thing as another character to another character. Totally. And so it's like a fascinating yeah. like, continuation to watch him be subject to those controls.
3: Absolutely. Right. I, yeah, I, I felt exactly that way when I was watching Jessica Jones. I was like, whoa, reverse midnight. <laughs> um, you yeah. yeah. should have called but, it that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of comic book fans would have taken issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so essentially, as after this whole switch happens and everyone uh, is is freaking out about his voice being in her body, but not his words... It, it's bizarre. It's very difficult to explain. And of course I picked a yeah. weird thing to try to explain on a podcast, but Good. just go watch the episode. <laughs> yeah.
2: So that's, that's, what I would say, Luna, it's a great choice, a very scary episode and it's an example like the weeping angels, right? Of a kind of cerebral monster presentation mm-hmm. where, you know, what they're doing, what the monster there is doing is not in itself frightening, but, because of the, the filming and the acting and, and one is thinking about it and then and then when she starts getting in sync and then anticipating the doctor, that's really the frightening part because how are they doing
3: that? right mm-hmm. And then the voice changes as well. so it's not entirely his voice. it starts saying like his phrases but flippantly and smiling like Alonnzi, yeah. multtabino yeah. like, it, it was it's extremely disturbing to watch Mm -hmm. and i'm just so thankful for all of the artists that went into that episode it's it's one of my very very favorite episodes of doctor who
4: it's a great choice because because like like not only is it a thing that shouldn't exist where it exists but then also like it's in your head and knows you more than you do right yeah which is terrifying
3: and then there there's this moment where the doctor is is staring at into sky's eyes uh this is like at the beginning of the repeating, when it's still repeating everybody. And he's asking, like, what do you want? Do you need a body? Do you need a voice? Is like asking the monster what agency it needs. Like, what can I get you to help you? It's like, what is and of course me being me i'm like ooh that's like a peaceful revolution it's like people like asking what do you need to to get what you you know what do you need to get what you want and get the equality that you're seeking and it's like bitch there there ain't no equality with like being nice to me i'm going to need you to just throw the whole police out yeah, so
0: yeah, yeah. like
3: i just yeah. feel like there's a um i don't know it's it's such a fascinating i could talk about it forever and ever um so i won't Uh, But I do want to mention the poem that is said on the, well, it's an excerpt from Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti, Mm. um, which I just, I love in the context of this episode. Uh, The quote is we must not look at goblin men, we must not buy their fruits, who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots. It's just so eerie and earthy and under the fingernails and i just i love it so i've got
2: a kevin knows way too much about doctor who for that one as well (laughs) the scientist that you mentioned luna um who has who is very very bad right to his um apprentice right um is actually played by david Troughton, who is the son of patrick Troughton, the famous second doctor from the
3: late 60s whoa yeah i had no idea yeah he's there such a jerk
2: he's every so often if you listen to his voice in midnight you can get just a little you know for for somebody like me who's watched all the trap and stuff you get a little you go oh yeah i hear oh my something.
3: goodness that's amazing he's great at being yes. an asshole he is. He's a, yes he's a terrible <laughs> person yeah
4: that's actually like on his imdb like great at <laughs> being an asshole yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah i love the i love the choice of the midnight entity um It actually for mine reminds me a little bit of not what I was going to choose, but one that I was really thinking about, which is the beast. Oh yeah. So I, I wasn't going to choose the beast, but the reason why they have a sort of resemblance and I'll be quick about this because it's, it's not my choice, but so, so the beast was introduced in the impossible planet and it's another entity That sort of there aren't many entities that escape the doctor's knowledge base, you know, where he's actually afraid of it because it violates his own understanding of the universe. And the midnight entity is one of those rare entities where it's like, I don't know what powers it has, how it's doing this, what its origin is, and the beast is another one of the the few where. It's, um, right. so the doctor lands on this sort of planetoid that is in this precarious like orbit around a black hole. Long story short, cause this isn't my choice. He, uh, it starts. So there's this, this crew there that are maintaining this planetoid and trying to understand it's curious gravitational relation to the black hole. And the doctor gradually discovers that there's, this ancient entity buried inside this planetoid it is hypothesized that it is the origin it's not satan per se but it is like the larger Mm. scarier more eternal demonic origin for all of these intergalactic species versions like like mental hierarchy versions of what a satanic entity would be
2: he's like a jungian It's like the Jungian archetype.
4: Exactly. Exactly. It's like the archetype, like all of these like fears that all of these species around the universe have point back to this massive, massive powerful thing that was placed in this planetoid, in this curious relationship to a black hole such that if it escapes, it gets ripped apart in the black hole because it was so dangerous. I, I won't mention per se cause it, cause this isn't my choice. I won't belabor it too much what the, the solution to the situation is, but watch the impossible planet. But it's so interesting to me because like the midnight entity, there are so few powerful and truly terrifying species that are beyond the doctors yeah. lifetimes of wisdom and knowledge that they're kind of, two of the only ones that i can think of and they're two of the only situations where the doctor finds himself terrified yeah where it's like like because he's like oh the the beast says it's a demon i i can't he literally can't comprehend a non-scientific explanation for a thing he's like i've met gods i've defeated Mm -hmm. supposed gods but this is something that supposedly predates Mm -hmm. the universe which he believes to be impossible
3: right Yo, that's uh, that's incredible. Yeah. I really love that episode as well. Mm-hmm. And I one of the things I appreciate about it most is how effectively they instill this feeling of that that precarious feeling, this unbalanced feeling throughout the entire episode mm-hmm. like at, at any moment this could all go tumbling. <laughs> it's like ultimate anxiety. Yeah like anxiety train well yeah yeah
4: because like like i'll I'll use like a boxing metaphor normally in an episode like the doctor's always on the front foot you know like he has a history he has knowledge of how to defeat a thing he has some reason to be confident in his ability to outthink the threat right but it's an episode he spends the entirety on the back foot like kind of in a defensive stance against the entity that he doesn't understand and the claims it makes about itself that seems to be that that is able to back up are in his mind impossible yeah uh so I, I think it's uh the impossible planet and it's it's uh the the following episode they don't the the I think that's this the Satan pit
2: yeah that's the second one yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: they don't have currently a huge mythos impact but it's a wonderful like two pack of episodes mm-hmm. that literally challenge his conception of the universe mm-hmm. and make the doctor afraid throughout True. and they have a satisfying resolution it's just a great set of episodes they're not my choice but it's like the midnight entity is such a great choice and it reminds me so much yeah. of the beast yeah so yeah awesome. i had to throw that out there my choice is i had to pick the weeping angels <laughs> because i love the design and they're such an effective horror creature, like horror style creature. Mm-hmm. I find them very conceptually inspiring, and I know they're very popular. So I didn't want to pick something popular, but I yeah. like them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> no they're they're great. They're, the they're like they're great. weird sci-fi Freddy Krueger-esque statues. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Okay, so the uh, the Weeping Angels were first introduced in the series three episode Blink, and they're the species of humanoids who their mo is they send their victims backwards through time and they feed off of the remaining time energy of their victims potential life so cool it's yeah. very conceptually cool yeah. it works so centrally to the the time themes of doctor who and it's it's also in a superficial sense nonviolent mm-hmm. yeah cuz you you don't die you live out your life in another time but it's like they fuck you over <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think the doctor says they just zap you back in time and let you live to
4: death right I yeah 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 and they feed off of that time displacement mm-hmm. and and technically I should say that they also feed off they can feed off other time energy so if there's like a time ship like the tardis or um, a leak in space time that leaks time energy they can feed off those things technically but their main mo is to just you know F you send you back. And then eat right. your future right. in a way. And the other interesting thing about them is it become uh, quantum locked. So if you observe them, and this is what I find most interesting, they effectively, as far as you're concerned, turn to stone and become a statue while you're observing them. And when you're not, they are a living predator that can move faster than, you know, you, you can't yeah. blink yeah. basically and and that's actually the reason why they're called weeping angels because they always appear to be weeping covering their eyes so that they don't accidentally quantum lock each other in like a perpetual stone nature so there's like uh four episodes really that develop their mythos and so in those four episodes we see them mostly take the form of angels sometimes as like little cherubs as younger versions And they also can convert other statues to be kind of like Mm -hmm. them when they're in attack mode, they'll turn from looking like literal statues to being um, more visibly monstrous with fangs and claws. So yeah, and I I love it. So their notable episodes include blink the time of angels and flesh and, and and then it's follow up flesh and stone. And then the angels take Manhattan, Mm -hmm. which has a massive, Evil Angel Statue of Liberty. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that's right. I forgot about
2: that. And that,
4: and that's definitely going to be the image for the episode. Yeah,
2: Yeah. saying it right now. Yeah, no, that would be great. That would be great. Um, These again are you know examples of the kind of cerebral monsters, and Stephen Moffat is really good at creating those. The Empty Child is another one, right? Because
0: Mm -hmm. on
2: the face of it, the Empty Child is just a little boy who has a gas mask on who all, all he says is, are you my mommy? Right. Are you my mommy? But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they the weeping angels are so great that I dedicate like two weeks to them in my doctor who and philosophy class and have developed a presentation about quantum physics that, you know, talks about the quantum lock and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm glad yeah. you brought them on. You know.
4: No, I love it so much because like the, I mean, first, at the most superficial level, the design is cool, you know, like, Mm -hmm. especially like on earth, part of the reason why they're such a menacing threat is because we have so many statues and they can become anything hypothetically could be one of them. And then we learn from, uh, I think it's the time of angels and flesh and stone that their image in your mind can infect you and manifest them. create new angels which i thought was
3: so Mm -hmm. cool right
4: and i i absolutely love that where it's like because we're such an image dominant culture that to even watch them like it's kind of like the ring where where if you're really into the world of the ring and you're watching it part of you thinks when you're watching the video like am i cursing myself right but with the angels it's interesting too because we establish from amy watching the footage of the angel right. and then it infecting spoilers uh, infecting her and manifesting one as a reproductive element that are watching the angels puts us at threat of being infected by the angels in a way that not a lot of shows right. or films pull off
2: what i was gonna say is when i watch that in class with students I point out the at the end, um, and there's a great ending, right, to where they keep showing you mm-hmm. uh, pictures of, of common statues in London, I guess, or whatever. The implication mm-hmm. is any of these could, could be a weeping angel. But at the very end, I, I turn to the students, and after we've discussed it for a little bit, um, I say, now one thing that some of my friends have pointed out about this is that there's sometimes in the old mansion – where a lot of the action takes place where neither Sally nor uh, forgetting the male leads name, which is terrible. um, Sally or her potential love interests are looking at the angels, but they're not moving. And I said, isn't that really kind of a terrible continuity error or whatever? Why didn't they catch that? And I just leave it there and I wait because inevitably one of the more intelligent students in the class will say, "Well, but we were looking at them." And I go, "Yep, yeah, you got it." <laughs> so, you're, you're part of the adventure, right? You stop them.
4: Yeah, I love it cuz not cuz not many, you know, pieces of media can actually effectively right. pull that off. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're such a resilient and frightening menace because not only are they everywhere, but they could be in your They could be at your park. They could be in front of your building. They could be in your mind. So yeah, I I love them. I find them. uh, I find the notion of a giant statue of liberty weeping angel to be absolutely wonderful uh, in a terrifying way. Um, (laughs) the The only question that I have is that they they sometimes move spectacularly fast and sometimes they take their sweet time, Uh and I always wonder what the logic for that is. But
3: Hey, sometimes I'm faster and other days, you know, my back hurts.
1: I just had a big lunch. So I'm just going to like (laughs) saunter.
3: Like,
4: look, exactly. They're just like, all right, look, we just sent like a whole family back and I'm really full (laughs) right now. (laughs) I'm going to accept that as canon. I like that. I'm going to accept that right
3: now. Yeah. I mean, I love the the concept of like being robbed of your choice mm -hmm. of future. Mm-hmm. Like you have all these plans for yourself, and that's what gets stolen yeah. from you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so tragic. Like you know, obviously, I'm. We've talked some spoilers on this episode, but I I will not spoil the the larger Angels plot line throughout um, right the Doctor Who seasons. But it's a, it's such a potentially tragic consequence i mean we see it in the episode with the young police officer who is trying to take carrie mulligan on a date and uh, you know gets zapped back and he's like i ended up marrying this other lady
2: yeah it's really sad because there's like i don't know 10 15 minutes between when he disappears as young billy and when she gets drawn to the hospital and sees him so much older, right? And he's lived through yeah. her entire life and more. Uh, very dramatic. Very, very well-written scene.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he's talking about, like, look at these old hands. How'd that happen? And I'm just like, oh, yeah. my soul. Um, <laughs> but uh, in, in addition, though, like I think, Kevin, you were mentioning this earlier. It's, it's just one of those Moffat cerebral monsters where there are lines in there where it's like the angels are the loneliest creatures in the world because Mm -hmm. they can never be seen
4: they can never look at each other they can never be in community
3: exactly yeah it's just it's well done i i really appreciate a lot of moffat's monsters and episodes Mm i a preferred russell t davies as showrunner uh, but you know, it's okay. I can have bad opinions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but Moffat has definitely has a way of developing some really interesting, like, uh, like the Vashir Narada of yeah. uh, mm-hmm. basically the fear of the dark, yeah. fear of yeah. shadows. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. yeah, he has a lot of like very youngian villains.
3: Yeah, he he has said um, that he
2: tests his ideas for scary monsters out on his kids who I'm sure are older now and, and not an issue, but, uh, you know, he, he really does. I mean, there was a Matt Smith episode called night terrors, right. Yeah. In which there was a little boy who kept thinking that there was something in his closet and, you know, going to bed at night, there was something in the dollhouse in the room or whatever. And it, it's, it's, you know, the sort of experiences that everybody has growing up, Steven Moffat recognized the doctor who started as a children's show and so mm-hmm. there is a certain sense in which some of his horror slash thriller uh, plots play on, uh, you know, or take off from things that that kids would find frightening in the world.
4: Um, and, and I will point out that I'm sure that he's divorced now because <laughs> <laughs> for terrorizing his children. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe.
2: <laughs> maybe.
3: Yeah. And and that, I mean, to your point, like, silence in the library is told through the child's yeah. eyes. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the big, uh, like, points of waking Donna up was pointing out how the children are all the same. So y- you're right. There's a lot of child-centric writing. Right um for him which is maybe why i haven't stuck around oh. there
2: there's also a lot of interaction between the matt smith doctor and children in uh, in his episodes
3: and yes that is know, true
2: you know I, I think he wanted to play on this idea and it comes through even in matt smith's first story the 11th hour that the doctor is kind of like everybody's favorite imaginary friend right? yeah. who can do anything mm-hmm.
4: Well, even down to the episode where he's on, um, I'm forgetting the name of that planet, but. Um, of oh, Trenzal. Trenzalore. Trenzalore, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. But he's on Trenzalore for a very long time and becomes an old version of himself. And even still, his final right. moments on the planet, he's connected to this local child who's like, I, but I want you to be here. And he's engaging with that child as though they're friends. Mm-hmm. Right you know, so they even have that relationship even into like those really like impactful moments.
3: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I do
4: want to shift. There's so many good monsters that that I would like to talk about that we would all like to talk about, but I do kind of want to give us opportunity to, we've been diving really deep, but I, I want to just give anyone an opportunity to talk about any sort of themes that really... Uh, especially ones connected to these creatures, these monsters or species that,
3: that really stick out to them that are really impactful. Going back and watching these, as I've mentioned, has been quite the experience um, in my current self. And I wonder if, I don't know, a hundred years from now or 50 years from now, people will look at American sci-fi and television and be like, man, they're afraid of fascism. Hmm. As much as we can look back at British sci-fi mm-hmm. back in early Doctor Who, and then again in later Doctor Who, saying, "Wow, this is all about fascism." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I just noticed so many parallels there. Kevin had mentioned it earlier in the episode. I have also been seeing a lot of a lot of there's a lot about being robbed of choice mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that I think is important. Mm-hmm to name because it really is one of the most common fears for every human regardless of who you are where you live in some way there's a threat of you losing your choice whether it's real or imagined and that drives a lot of decision in our daily lives and and outward from that so Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just it's interesting looking at how often that shows up in all of these you know episodes that I've been watching over and over and over since I was in college. Well, I would say that like,
4: just to, to add to your, um, your commentary, uh, even for a lot of American sci-fi, you see a lot of those themes in terms of major villains, right? Like you, That's true. you can see that. I mean, obviously in star Wars, right in America yeah. Oh, yeah. where yeah. the the empire is literally modeled after the Nazis in star Trek, you have entities like the Borg, and oh, the that are so like cool. you know they'll they'll literally make you one of them because they want absolute totalitarian control over the universe and resistance is futile so you definitely see yeah. that in the western powers that oppose the nazis and i, I think it's still like a very poignant theme today because we have like a weird contemporary like fascism is popular among some sectors of the american populace for some reason so you are you you have these like monolithic totalitarian threats that invade a society and that keep cropping up in ways that make this content relevant again
3: and again and again unfortunately right and then that leads to the fear of choice being robbed from you and so there are the folks that in their daily lives are having choices torn from them and there are the folks that believe that they're having choices or they will have choices torn from them uh, Mm -hmm. such as wearing a mask for example um yeah and so when we're looking at Mm -hmm. Why are we at where we're at? I mean, we all live in America. I actually don't know where you live, Kevin. I assume that you're
2: (laughs) living in the U.S. I'm barely still in the U.S., Spokane, Washington.
3: Okay, yeah. You got a toe. You have a toe here. So, yeah, just, it's just interesting thinking about, like, so why is this fear, you know, in every piece of media that I've been consuming? And it's like, well, everybody's afraid that they're losing their choice,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Um, mm-hmm. whether real or imagined. And then it's like, well, how do you convince people that they're not actually being oppressed?
2: One of my one of my favorite uh, philosophers, the German Friedrich Schiller, he's really better mm-hmm. known for plays and poems, uh, but he was an aficionado of Immanuel Kant's uh, work on aesthetics. And there's this quote from Schiller that you know is two hundred and fifty three hundred years old, but uh, it seems to apply, which is uh, the modern condition is that with every opportunity and freedom that we open, uh, we create a new problem and new constraints from the solution. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think this is what's frustrating people is that they feel like their sense of freedom should, in some way, be progressive. Whether that's left wing sense of progressive or you know, what I would consider to be regressive right-wing way of thinking about things going back to some golden days. But in fact, you know, things that we do to make people more free, in fact, um, produce, you know, Max Weber's iron cage uh, mm-hmm. of modernity mm-hmm. that we're all trapped
4: in. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, cause I mean, it, it's so strange today where we have all these forces that try and create In that sense, like this monolithic, we would like everyone to be the same and we're threatened by you if you vary to any degree, like be it personal lifestyle, be it sexual orientation, gender, anything like, like if you protest even a blatantly unjust situation to any normal bystander, like that disrupts the quote unquote norm and therefore is worthy of extermination and that ethos of absolute subservience and unity even if it's unjust is definitely in the in the daleks is in the empire is in a lot of these like sci-fi menaces that come from the stars but they reflect something that we still deal with thank you for bringing that up i I think that's uh incredibly insightful
2: um i'd just like to mention what I think is, uh, the, the last discussion, you know, made some parallels between this British science fantasy and American sci-fi. I think what is distinctive mm-hmm. about Dr. Who and the, the thrills and the horror that it, it manifests. And I, 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 hesitate to say this unifies the whole show. Um, like you started off saying, Jeff, you know, uh, it's really hard, you know, to characterize the whole show according to some themes, but, I, I have found it very profitable to look at the show as intentionally capitalizing on a sense of the uncanny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uncanny in philosophy, again, Schiller talks about the uncanny, is is literally it is beyond our mm-hmm. ken. It is, you know, not understandable. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily uh, uh, monstrous or horrific, but it's it, it frightens us because we can't wrap our right. mind around. It. And the way in which doctor who distinctively does that and this is part of its britishness i think is to take things that uh people don't find frightening that you just encounter on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and make them frightening right so uh john pertwee the third doctor who was on tv in the early 70s said uh you know kids enjoy watching daleks shooting humans and whatever but he said what's really frightening is when you walk into your loo in Tooting Beck, which is a suburb of London, and find a Yeti on it, right? So (laughs) uh, the the example is is a little bit ridiculous, but both the old and the new show do a lot of work in taking the normal and and making it uncanny, making it Mm -hmm. strange or frightening or mysterious or whatever. And I actually think that that's a really good... um, a really good theme to have in a show that you follow because I believe that it actually encourages me and probably other viewers to do the same outside the bounds of simply consuming the entertainment right. Right, in the real world. Uh, so, so I like that theme as describing kind of what's distinctive about Dr. Who's way of front. No, I,
4: I think that's really insightful. I, I like it a bunch. Um, I like the series a bunch because, uh, so in, in a equator mass episode, we talk about how in all these successive films, there are these almost cosmic horror sorts of threats, you know, like on this show, mm-hmm. we keep coming back to cosmic horror because conceptually, I really like it that mm-hmm. the rules of reality are not what we expect them to be and our place in the universe is not what we uh, imagine it as and that is the source of yeah. the terror. Like it's beyond our understanding and in the face of actual reality, we are nothing. Conceptually, I find that to be both terrifying and interesting. Quatermass does that in a very, like these are public threats and these are, everything's apocalyptic, you know, like these aliens, if left Mm -hmm. to their own devices will consume us all. These aliens left to their own devices will become us and we will be their sort of um, handmaidens on earth while they take over. You know, these aliens are in the souls of our existence and and are kind of our progenitors and we aren't what we thought ourselves to be. But they're all very public apocalyptic threats. And and there's lots of that in Doctor Who. But I do like, as you're saying, that it takes that same ethos and it puts it in the more personal level of day to day life where, you know, you have a Christmas episode where they're using your Christmas tree against you, <laughs> yeah, right. you. know, And it's not all that literal, but right. they're definitely like your day-to-day right. existence is not what it seems. Because in Quatermass, it's brilliant, mm-hmm. but there are these public level threats that government and scientific operatives deal with that other than knowing you're being attacked by something, don't feel. But in mm-hmm. Doctor Who, a lot of these threats, and it comes again and again, this could be your tomorrow and it could be your house. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that. I think that lands it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I was thinking of Christmas invasion, you know, while you were, while you were saying these things, Andre's episode is particularly good at that. Uh, It's, it's amazing to think that back in 2005, 2006, when that was broadcast, that the BBC was perfectly okay with broadcasting on Christmas day, an episode where, a third of the human race mm-hmm. is about to kill mm-hmm, those.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Merry that,
4: Christmas. That's pretty Um dark.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I remember, Christmas. so as I was wrapping up my um, whole thing on the Sycorax, uh, Kevin, you brought up the fact that Sycorax is the name of Caliban's mother in The Tempest. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I did a little bit of more research into that, and it, it seems like Sycorax is very closely related to the character of Medea. From, from the Metamorphoses and, and also, like, the other uh, story just called Medea. Her depiction is really interesting here because, like, most of the versions that have been, like, translated that are available today, uh, they depict her as, like, a priestess mm. of Hecate. Mm-hmm. So definitely, like, uh, a handmaiden to basically uh, an evil witch that yeah. is one of the um, rulers of, like, the Underworld um she has like a very tragic story uh where she marries jason of like jason of of jason and the argonauts story um uh and then she ends up killing the woman that jason leaves her for after 10 years of marriage (laughs) she she gives them like a, a dress that sticks to her body and burns her alive as you do um yeah, it's it's a simple revenge tactic. <laughs> then she flees for Athens after she kills her sons that she had with Jason, and then I think f- from there, the the idea of Sycorax in the Tempest was probably taken with that sort of motivation of uh, murder and cold blood and ex- like self exiling to um, some probably indisclosed location in. Athens, or in this case, uh, the island in the Tempest. Um, and while that is probably where that came from, uh, the, the cigarettes in Doctor Who is very much on the front side, like very evil, but um, their, their need for conquest and colonization is sort of like the base uh, urge for the much more evolved mm-hmm. evil of like the fascist conquest. What I found more interesting is some other versions of the Tempest. Uh, Sycorax actually has like some speaking roles, oh, wow. but she still maintains like this um, evil witch malevolence to Prospero, but only because Prospero says that she is evil. Yeah. Like we're never shown that, we're always told that. And I found that really interesting because um, a lot of. Um, framing of stories like this, even just going back to like the witch hunts is exactly that is this man is saying that this person is evil. So we have to believe them because they have more agency. Right.
4: right, It's just like an assertion. uh, Yeah. backed by power. And you can't question like the, the village leaders, the church leaders. Mm
1: -hmm. Yep. There's no challenging it there's no questioning it. Um, And so, the motivation for Sycorax is specifically at at that point, giving voice to the people, particularly women in this case, Mm -hmm. uh, that are recovering from the effects of colonization. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I think there's something there for uh, like the Sycorax race in Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. or we could recontextualize that or reexamine.
2: Yeah. And I think it's significant, right, Andre, that in the end, the Sycorax are that ship is eliminated mm-hmm. by Harriet Jones, flexing her power as uh the first prime mm-hmm. min- f- female prime minister, presumably since Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. if there was yeah. a Margaret Thatcher in the Doctor Who universe. And yet the doctor takes her down with you know one yep. whispered sentence uh in the ear of her, you know. So you know, again, you guys are talking about horror. We could talk about gender in Doctor yep. Who. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and talk yeah. about that for two mm-hmm. hours as well. But that, that's a very interesting uh, set of dominoes, right? That fall. And where do where the dominoes end? Fall yeah.
0: down, mm-hmm.
1: the and so the, this is my platform to pitch the fact that they should bring the Sycorax back as like uh, an yeah. arc level threat. But with the introduction slash creation of a Sycoraxian queen. To take back that power,
0: mm-hmm.
1: come back to Earth, and like not just for them to get scared away again, because apparently that that did happen in some later like book or comic book or something. Yeah, like mm-hmm. s- something where they can really just get under uh, everyone's skin and challenge the basis yeah. of how um, the world has been operating on the basis of accepting colonization as a pretense. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: I love it. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea. Yeah.
2: yeah, there's a lot more you can do with blood yeah. magic. Yeah, so
3: absolutely, I am here for that. I cosign. Because, yeah, like, <laughs> like, my my
4: one criticism of that episode, which I thought was really strong, but I felt like the uh, the resolution for the sort of blood magic plotline was a little weak. Yeah, because it's basically just mm-hmm. like waving hands, like, oh, well, it's like hypnosis. You don't really. Uh, It's just not a strong thing to do. Like, Mm -hmm. like, wait. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah.
1: And it's honestly kind of like uh, an empty flex in a way. Yes. Where it's like, no one has seen it except for the doctor. But, like, they weren't betting on that. So they're using it. And, of course, it's freaking out everyone on the planet. But when, like, the doctor just, like, pulls back the curtain, he... He figures out its blood, he presses the button and he knows that no one's gonna jump because like everyone's baser instinct is like, I'm not gonna fucking jump. Like, what am I doing here?
2: (laughs) So yeah, maybe Andre, the the lead in to the return is you know, the sick racks come back in force and whatever they do that is kind of the grab for the return episode is based on the fact that they still have the connection with the blood of the people that that they got when they were there mm-hmm. in the Christmas invasion and maybe even their descendants. And yeah. they're like, we're back bitches.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. And they had they in that episode, I don't remember what the numbers yeah. were, but they threatened like like sell one half into slavery or kill one third of the population or something like yeah. that. I would love to see them come and start colonizing. How, all, all like western civilization
0: yeah
4: <laughs> well yeah because yeah. like yeah because because i mean they do um i mean they're like intergalactic conquerors right like it's not just by like mm-hmm. tricky mm-hmm. blood mm-hmm. magic that they do that you know they have means to their disposal right. that we haven't seen awesome uh awesome. this has been such a good <laughs> it's gone long i love it thank you all for your time it's been such a good conversation though yeah, yeah. Just a, thanks yeah it's
2: been
4: great at that for for just today i will wrap up this episode i think that's a great closeout um i want to expend uh, to extend a special thank you to to kevin decker for 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 stopping by and, yeah, and giving you. us his his time thank you Jeff. um and, and to both our co-hosts uh, andre and luna uh thank you both so much um it's been a true pleasure uh for me um I, I do like to let our, our guests and our co-hosts uh, pitch themselves to the listeners at the end of an episode, though. Um, Kevin, how can our listeners find your work, and do you have anything that you'd like to pitch?
2: Well, um, because I've watched so much Doctor Who, I'm a little bit technophobic. I, I know what the computers and the robots are going to do to us eventually. Uh, but, um, you can, uh, catch up with me at my webpage, the philosophy webpage at Eastern Washington university, go Eagles. And, um, also Ooh. I might ask listeners to watch out for a couple of upcoming projects that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Uh, Dune and philosophy. I'll be editing to coincide with the new movie series that's coming out. That'll be very interesting. And I'm probably going to submit that. Good. That's good. And uh, happy to say that my uh, friend from graduate school, Dr. Jason Everell, who's done two Star Wars and Philosophy volumes with me, uh, is going to be doing a third with me called uh, Star Wars and Philosophy Strikes Back, I think coming out in 2022. Um,
4: Wonderful. Uh, I'm probably going to submit to that one, too. Uh, I look forward to both. He's great. You're great. And it's been a bit since I've written one of those Lovely chapters, and I really genuinely miss it. It's like riding a bike; you never forget. <laughs> it is, and it always just makes you happy to do it. Yep. <laughs> thank you for that, uh, Andre. Uh, where, like, where can the listeners find your work and what you are up to?
1: I just kind of like live on Twitter right now, so I, I guess you could find me there. Um, my my handle is at uh, Fritz Merrill H. Uh, that is spelled F R I T Z. M-E-R-I-L-L-H I I guess from there, it's really just Twitter and Letterboxed. so um, if you just search my name, Andre Couture or my handle uh, Hamburger Harry you can find me there Uh, but Letterboxed Twitter (laughs) um, that's pretty much where I'm at these days
4: Wonderful, Uh, and of course folks at home, you can find them here Um,
3: and uh, Luna? Uh, Yeah, so um still not performing yet because covid so stay tuned Indeed. to my um my social media if you are interested in seeing me hang from things and fly around um <laughs> and otherwise I do have another podcast it's called the goth and the sloth it's uh me and a friend uh when I moved to the east coast we were like how do we stay in touch and I was like obviously we make a podcast um so That's what you do <laughs> so you can also hear my voice there uh, we will be coming out with season two uh in next month june so um fantastic so my social media is L- luna underscore m-i-n-u-i-t uh basically on everything um Find me on TikTok. I spend way too much time on there, so at least engage right. with me there so that I can feel less alone at 3 a.m. Um, and, yeah.
4: Yep. Well, uh, thank you so much. And and folks, home, you can also find her here, because um, we have the coolest people, and then also me. <laughs> um,
2: and uh, well, there.
4: <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode, um, <laughs> once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode. And to all of you out there listening, from the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares, they've been our protectors and our villains, they've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive.